Hello and welcome to the Almost Enlightened podcast. I'm your host, Alex Morin, and it is so great to be releasing a new episode. It's been about two weeks since my last one, which was entitled Watch Your Language, which took a look at the way in which our language shapes the way we view the world, including our perceptions on time and our relationships with objects and people. And as is often the case, the last two weeks have been filled with additional lessons that have come my way on just how powerful language really is in influencing our worldview. And a special shout out today to my buddy, Albin, who provided the Stephen Hawking quote when he brought attention to it when posting about Pink Floyd's Keep Talking track that appears in the beautiful album, Division Bell. Thank you, Albin. All right, let's figure out what this next episode is worth. I came up with a thought the other night that I'd like to explore in this podcast. Initially, the idea seemed so revolutionary to me that I considered the possibility of writing a book on the topic. So I began by creating an outline of the concept and then proceeded to fill in chapter titles, supporting points, and interesting anecdotes that might accompany my theory. While I still might do that, write a book that is, I think I'll test out my theory in this podcast since this very forum is intended to be a safe place in which I can play with my ideas and then get some feedback on the quality of the thoughts. So without further ado, let's jump into this podcast episode so that I can share this idea that I had with you. Today's episode is called The Economics of Worth. The idea came to me on Sunday night as I was meditating on the topic of one of the courses I teach to corporations. Let me take a short minute to give you some background knowledge so that you can understand the principle I'm about to share. One of my businesses revolves around corporate training and a specific course. The course itself was created upon the new education I've received over the past 14 months and from a lifetime of experience and acquired knowledge. You see, Over the past 14 months, I've been studying the power in being oneself. I've been learning about the power that's inherent in our ability to take thought and transform it into the realization of our most burning desires. To gain this knowledge, I've taken courses, read books, researched countless disciplines from psychology to economics to physiology to chemistry to biology, leadership, human resources and the list goes on. Along the way, I also checked in with my intuition and the knowledge and wisdom that already exists within. I took 20 years in the corporate world as an executive leader and built a course that attempts to take what I know and take the formula that's made me successful in business and teach an improved way to accomplish one's goals. But my course isn't for everyone. It takes a special kind of company to recognize that in order to transform, you must transform. Not everybody's ready or courageous enough to take that step. But for those that do, and particularly for those that are bold enough to try a different approach, my program works. I've seen it firsthand. I've seen clients take my lessons and radically alter their business and personal lives. In spite of having built this program that I continue to improve upon every time I coach it, I still get a lot of no's when I pitch the concept. And that's totally okay. Because anyone that's in sales or knows anything about sales 
knows that rejection is a super important part of the process. It makes you improve. It forces you to self-examine. It makes you wiser. So as a student of sales, I asked myself, what could I do to improve my close ratio so that I can help more people? Without waiting five seconds, an idea suddenly popped into my mind. Do you want to know what that idea was? Initially, that idea was to give my course away for free. Ha <laughs> ha! Had I lost my mind? No. And incidentally, we're not talking about a low-ticket sale either. Now, I should probably tell you that my course is a 10-week course that consists of one hour of live classroom teachings per week, supplemented with an audio lesson, skill sheets, some spontaneous homework assignments, and so on and so forth. The course took me months to build, and it's taken me way more months to fine-tune to the point that I have a winning formula. It's gotten progressively better each time I've coached it. But let's get back to this idea of giving it away for free. Now, I couldn't very well survive if I gave my course away at no charge and made no money with which to pay the mortgage, the bills, and sustain a sizable family. So another idea came whipping into my mind, which was to eliminate the price tag and remove the financial stumbling block for many companies. But how would I do that and still make enough money to survive? Interestingly, the answer revolves around belief and worth. Do I believe in my course? Well, yes, I do. Anecdotally and evidentially, I've seen the results firsthand. So then if I believe in the course, then I should believe that if I teach the material to the best of my ability, then students will be amply motivated and inspired to take my ideas, apply them, and succeed. Well, after many months of refining my program, I'm at a point where I have full confidence that exact scenario does indeed unfold. Now, I didn't always have that full confidence because that's something that builds with time and experience, but I do now. So I'm inclined to flip the script. I'm considering the prospect of offering my course to companies with no price tag. Now that's not to say that I don't want to make money from my course, but I'm saying that I'm considering going about it in a much different way. It's important to note that everything I've told you thus far is critical in setting up the case study, which is why I'm using one of my businesses as an example. So let's go ahead and demonstrate what this approach could look like. What if the next time I offer my course, I tell my prospects that the course doesn't have a price tag? Undoubtedly, I believe that the course has value, but what if my potential customers were to determine the value of my course themselves? Yeah, no doubt, I'd be taking a risk. I'd be risking not getting paid for the prep it takes to refine and prepare each lesson, the time and energy it takes to devise thoughtful homework assignments, the time it takes to conduct check-in interviews, the thought preparation, the coaching of the actual course, and the countless other things I do to prepare for each lesson. But what if I consider the time spent, without any initial payment, to be an investment? The more I give or invest, in theory, 
the more that will come back, in theory, financially and otherwise. In this manner, there's no financial burden on the company whose desire it is to grow, but is unsure of the return on their investment. In this manner, we're completely aligned in the mission. I was thinking that to begin with, part of the deal would be that out of the 10-week course, they'd have to take at least three of the first lessons in order to give the course a fair shake. But after that, if they felt that the trajectory doesn't match their vision, then they can walk away and not have spent a dime. Now, you may be thinking that under that scenario, I'd be upset for having spent hours of instructional time, all of the prep that goes with those lessons, plus the additional time it takes to put everything together. But I choose to see it in a different way. I will have gained tremendous information that will improve my course in the future and make it less likely that the next customer will walk away. Now, I should also tell you that I'm not forecasting a huge percentage of companies walking away after lesson number three. But I am saying that either way, there are lessons to be learned. Okay, so let's take this case study a little further. Let's say that my course is really all that. Let's say that a few people in every 10-week course I teach understand the material to such an extent that it alters their lives in a profound and positive way. Now, let's imagine that my students make more sales as a result of the course, that more cooperation takes place in the work environment, better employee retention rates are realized after my course, and there's less absenteeism because people are mentally healthier after having taken my course. And I haven't even gotten into the personal victories. What if, on a personal level, people felt more empowered after taking my course? Their relationships improved. Their health improved. Their outlook on life improved. Then what? My guess and my hypothesis is that there would be a realization of value. This is where all the magic began when these thoughts came pouring into my mind on Sunday night. So now, I'm going to take us out of the case study and into the energy I first felt when I came up with this idea. When you receive value, what do you do? Do you revel in that value? Do you greedily take that value and hoard it? Or are you so excited by that value that it can't be contained? Do you take that excited energy and begin to release it into the world? My guess is that you do release it, perhaps without even knowing it. I can comfortably tell you that whenever I learn something that profoundly changes my life, I share that information with my family and friends. Sometimes I share it in a course, sometimes at the dinner table, and sometimes I do it through this podcast. The point is that I share the lesson. In other words, I share the energy. I give back. In many cases, if that wisdom came from someone I know worked hard to give it to me, I reward them. Sometimes that's with appropriate reciprocal energy, and sometimes that's financially. In fact, I just did it on Monday with a friend that provided me value in the way of sharing a unique gift. I gave her money. She didn't ask for it, 
but I was grateful and happy to support her hard work, work that benefited me and my family. The foundational point I'm making is that when we receive value or we feel value, there's a degree of energy in the form of emotion that's attached to the value we receive. My contention is that the energy or emotion you feel gets directed somewhere. Think about buying a new car for a moment. What's the first thing you do with your family or your friends after you purchase a car? Hey, yo, you want to take a spin in my new ride? Yeah, that's right. You show it off. You're happy. You're excited. You're sharing your energy with people. And if there's no jealousy involved, then people are genuinely happy to see you happy. It's a beautiful loop that perpetuates. In other words, there's energy in value. If I'm going to try this theory of mine, it's going to require a leap of faith. I'm going to have to risk time spent, which we all know is precious, and I'm going to risk some opportunity cost as well. In other words, the ability to make money while I'm directing my energy to an idea or a concept. But that really shouldn't be an issue, because as I mentioned earlier, this idea boils down to worth and belief. I believe in the course. I believe in myself. I believe in people. Simply put, I believe. Okay, so now let's talk about the ripple effect of such an idea. I've given you one example of how it might look and work with my course, but I want to spend some time discussing how this idea could play out around the world. What if we began a new era of commerce and coined it the worth economy? We wouldn't abandon economics, but we'd add something interesting to it. The added ingredient would be heart. Oh, he's so simple, that Alex. He's so pie in the sky. <laughs> okay, hear me out. Because I'm going to argue that economics already revolves around heart but it's been so skewed by greed that we often fail to recognize the beauty of the science of economics. One of the foundational principles of economics is the law of supply and demand. In a nutshell, people are willing to pay more for something they desire if there is a limited supply of it. The equation works both ways, though, as in, prices will fall if there's little demand and great supply. This is why some people are willing to pay thousands of dollars for a vintage pair of Nike shoes in the aftermarket. There's limited supply, and the demand is sufficient enough to establish a price tag that may seem bananas to some people. One of the things I find so fascinating about economics is that you can tinker with any part of the equation to find the perfect fit for your own offering. For example, some companies deliberately limit supply and or fix their pricing so high that it creates demand. If you truly understand these principles, you begin to see how economics is just as valid a science as biology. And that's a good thing, generally, because in this largely capitalistic world, we need money to survive, and we need to understand how it works or how it changes hands. Therefore, when there's demand, 
I believe that the principles of economics should prevail. However, when there's no demand for an offering, or the offering is so new that the people aren't aware of it yet, I'd like to propose how the worth economy might be a solution to the monopolization of resources that seem to benefit those with the deepest pockets. If people were to adopt my philosophy of a no-price-tag system for their unproven or new offerings, I wonder if a whole series of occurrences would take place. Oh, pray tell, Alex! Okay, let's say that I wanted to start a shoe company, but I was daunted by the likes of Nike or Adidas. Why not make the best shoes I could possibly make and then begin giving them away to people that want and desire shoes. Now, bearing in mind the principles of economics, you'll know what your cost of goods sold is. You'll have a pretty good idea of your cost of labor and all of the other administrative costs associated with making your shoes. So you'll have an idea of what you need to make in order to sustain your business and then ultimately to make profit from your business. So your hope is that whomever you give your shoes to will recognize a level of value, pay you that value, and at the very least, cover your costs and create some profitability. Assuming you gave your shoes to honorable people, and we'll get into that topic in a minute, you're going to find out pretty quickly if you've got a viable business idea. And if you don't, perhaps you need to improve upon the shoes you're making. Your customers might not be finding the worth in your offering. And this will cause you to have to improve your offering, which will benefit everyone. It's no different for a service like singing lessons. Essentially, what you're doing is putting your love, your energy, and your passion into your offering. The more you meet the needs of your customers, the more you'll profit. At some point, the laws of economics will kick in and you won't be giving away your offerings anymore, unless you choose to do so, because you will be attracting demand, which is subject to the economic laws of supply and demand. The way I see it, supply and demand isn't much different than the law of attraction that so many people are talking about these days. In short, Demand is nothing more than the awareness of worth and value. More worth and more value equals more attraction, or as economists call it, more demand. And where do you think worth and value come from? Let me tell you my opinion. The amount of worth or value I place on something is in direct proportion to my desire. More specifically, if I desire something badly enough and your product or service can fulfill that desire, then there is value and worth attached to your offering. The more the desire, the more the worth and value, provided your offering aligns with my desire. Are we getting this? Okay, let's dig just a little bit deeper. Let's go back to our shoe example for a moment. If my desire with regard to shoes is to protect the soles of my feet from being burned on the hot cement of a hot summer day, then flip-flops might be the optimal solution. However, if my desire is to win a marathon, then the desire for shoes will likely revolve around the weight of those shoes, the support provided by those shoes, the balance point, 
and a variety of other factors. That being the case, if I were a new manufacturer of running shoes geared towards marathons, then I might begin giving away shoes to people that run marathons and ask that they simply pay me what they think they're worth. If I build a better shoe than Nike does, then perhaps people will want to pay me what they would have paid for a Nike shoe, or perhaps even more. When I said earlier that I believe economics does indeed revolve around heart, I meant that it does so at its core. Unfortunately, my opinion is that greed corrupts the beauty of economics. Once we attempt to extract more profit at the expense of those that make our shoes, those that help us market our shoes, those that help us sell our shoes, and those that ultimately buy them, then the alignment falls apart and the system is no longer beautiful in my opinion. In this idea I have of a worth economy, people will only pay you what they feel your offering is worth. Oh, no, 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 Alex. What if everybody takes advantage of you and makes you go bankrupt? I love that question. And it's one that I alluded to earlier in this episode. I believe that if we begin with that mindset, then that's exactly what's going to happen. But if we believe in our fellow human beings then it doesn't have to be this way. The idea of a worth economy goes beyond the transaction. The proposed worth economy would be based on the principles of full transparency, honesty, service, and needs. And that transparency would have to run both ways, meaning that the provider and the recipient must have mutual respect and display mutual transparency. If I were to manufacture flip-flops with no support and no real artistic flair, I'd have to advertise them as such in the worth economy. For example, I might advertise that these flip-flops are bare bones. They're for short distances and protecting your feet from the hot cement. Hey, now you know what you're buying. You wouldn't tell me that you're not going to pay me for the flip-flops because you can't wear them on the red carpet. You knew that all along. But if they bust after two days, then I would understand why you wouldn't want to pay me. The question is, do you have a need? And can I fulfill your need or surpass your expectations? And if I'm honest about the intent behind my product or service and my intent resonates with your needs, then we have a connection. Now, all we need to do is to build trust. Trust in commerce exists when the seller consistently delivers upon the communicated promise of the offering. In other words, I'm providing you exactly what I promised. If I do that consistently, then trust is built. Let me give you an example. I love it when a company offers a lifetime warranty. It's not to say that their goods are going to last forever, but in spirit, the company believes in their products and the durability of their products. Here in Canada, there's a hat company called Tilly, T-I-L-L-E-Y, that prides itself on craftsmanship, quality materials, and textile innovation. Many of their hats have lifetime warranties against normal wear and tear, poor workmanship, and faulty materials. But they're also very honest about the things they can't control or can't master such as misuse, improper care, staining, fading, grommet patina, shrinking, or frayed wind cords. And I love that. 
I respect the honesty. I also love the fact that they believe in environmental responsibility. And no, I'm not being paid by Tilly Hats. Although if they wanted to find me and send me one, I wouldn't be in the least bit opposed. So the point is that in a worth economy, trust begins with honesty, and that honesty continues to speak through the brand promise. Live up to the brand promise, and you've got a viable offering. Look, the following is a rhetorical question. Why aren't car companies honest about the longevity, or lack thereof, of the parts that make up their cars? They know how long a clutch will last, how long your wipers will last, how long your transmission will hold out. But that's not part of the dialogue, is it? In the worth economy, that type of dishonesty through omission doesn't fly. Do you mean to tell me that car companies and the brilliant engineers they employ aren't aware of the durability of their car parts? Come on, you tell me. If some corporations weren't so consumed with year-over-year revenue and profit increases, and instead focused on delivering more value, perhaps the economy would produce obsolescence. That is to say, obsolescence of its own product offerings. Oh, what a ridiculous concept, Alex. But stick with me. You may be wondering why any business owner would want to purposely decrease repeat business by manufacturing products that last. But I'll tell you that this might stimulate innovation. We're building more cars every day because people need them. And generally, we need them because they don't last. If they lasted, perhaps we'd turn our attention to different modes of transportation that have nothing to do with wheels and motors. That's the kind of innovative world that I'd like to live in. But most people will criticize that idea because we're used to progressing at a certain pace. Most people haven't entertained the idea of paradigm shifts in innovation. They come along once in a while, but perhaps not as frequently as possible. However, I see that changing as we're in a new era of rapid development and our natural capabilities, which I think will lead us to places we can't quite fathom at the moment. The worth economy might be conceived of as a pie-in-the-sky idea, but so was democracy once upon a time, though I'd argue that modern-day democracy doesn't really resemble the ideal of it that was once espoused. But in speaking with a friend just yesterday, He pointed out that there's a store in downtown Toronto that provides fruits and vegetables to those that can't afford them. They simply ask the patrons to pay what they can. I'd be willing to pay more for my fruits and vegetables while shopping in that store, knowing that the worth economy balances out the generosity of the store owners. The potential of an economy of worth is a massive topic. One that really could formulate an entire book. I've barely scratched the surface of the many topics I wrote down to support the idea. However, this particular podcast forum isn't where I want to flush out a PhD thesis in economics. So I'm going to leave this subject and perhaps explore how my thoughts work across some of my business endeavors in the real world. Maybe it'll be wildly successful. Or maybe it'll be a complete flop. Maybe I'll have to iterate some of my ideas. But who knows? What I do know, and what I do love about this podcast, is that we get to explore ideas together. Take from it what you will, and have some fun exploring the infinite possibilities that exist in our minds. Possibilities that can easily make the jump 
from mind to matter. Hey, thanks for listening today. And always know that I appreciate you. Thank you.